So we're going to be in Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. Um, if you don't know where to find that and you're using the Bible that's in the, the pew rack in front of you, you can find, that, find it on page 783, page 783. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This is what God says to Nineveh. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountain with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we've heard your word read. We need the help of the Holy Spirit So the words we've just heard read, which are your words, would be having their proper effect upon us. So we don't want to begin an extended consideration of these words without first together in our hearts asking that you would shape us and mold us by your word. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a problem, I believe, in the evangelical church that's endemic, it's pervasive. I think it's a problem that includes us here at Maple Avenue. It includes me. And it's this. I think we have too flat a view of God. Our view of God is biblical, but it's flat. It lacks certain dimensions. Let me explain what I mean. The Bible presents different perspectives of who God is, different images of who God is, different descriptions of him. And certain ideas of who God is that are biblical are, are, are native to us. So even though we might still be trying to grasp the whole reality of God as Father, that's something that we intuitively understand. It's not hard for us to think of God as our shepherd. We just kind of natively go there. We love to consider how God is one who is not willing to extinguish the flickering wick or crush the bruised reed. These images of God are, are, are biblical and are vital and are important. But there are other views of God in the scripture that we sometimes don't grasp fully. And when we imagine God, or not imagine him, but when, when we consider who God is and think of him, we lack certain dimensions in that thought. And I worry that this flat view of God, while sufficient to carry us through some of the mundane trials and tribulations that we experience kind of as we coast along in an easy life. When we are crushed, when the evil of this world smacks us in the head and knocks us down, when the weight is too much on our shoulders to be able to bear up under, we need something more than just the flat view of God that we have. And I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about being knocked down and brought low, weight too much to bear. Betrayal, abuse, deep level heartache and grief. Perhaps at some level even the last two years of the pandemic has intensified these things for many of us. And the aspect of God that I think God has us considering this morning is his might. He's a mighty warrior. And what we heard read this morning was the mighty God taunting the Assyrians. Two specific taunts. Sanctified smack talk. 
cosmic chirping, divine dissing. In Psalm 2, it talks about how God looks down on the nations raging and he holds them in derision and he laughs. Is this our view of God? Or is this a component of our view of God? If you don't know what that looks like, we hear it right here through the prophet Nahum laying in Laying into Nineveh, laying into the Assyrian Empire. So this morning, we're going to just stop and hear God's taunts against the Assyrians. Before we dig into those two taunts, I think we need to get to know the Assyrians a little bit. Some of you may be familiar with them. I had to refresh myself even this last week over exactly who they were. Although I will give you a hint that they come up in Isaiah as well. So I've been doing that refreshing over the last few months. The Assyrians were probably, if not the most brutal, one of the most brutal civilizations, empires in the history of the world. I mean, just look in in Nahum itself and we get a sense of that. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Woe to the bloody city. That's how their capital is described. All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And then look how their armies depicted the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. In our own chapter, we'll, we'll read how, how brutal they were, that one of the things they would do, if, if, a, if a city wouldn't surrender to them, they would take their babies and their children and crush them or maim them in front of people. There's a, there's a depiction, um, they found some ancient Assyrian art, and there's a picture of a royal family at a picnic with his family. And they have the decapitated head of one of their conquered kings hanging in the tree next to them as they picnic. In the book of Jonah, when at one point the, Nineveh, the city of Nineveh itself repents and finds mercy before God, the king declares that Every single person needs to repent in the city, needs to repent of the evil and violence they've done. Like, that's just who we are. We're a violent people, and we all need to repent of it. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page eight, uh, five, 325. 325. Second Kings 18. So the, these Assyrians actually came um, against Jerusalem. And we get to hear just a little bit how they would approach their enemies. 
and even how the disregard they had for the Lord himself. So I'm going to pick up at verse 27. 2 Kings 18, verse 27. But the Rebshekah said to them, so the, the, the officials of Jerusalem had said, hey, can you speak in, in a language that not all, like don't speak in Hebrew that everyone's going to understand. And he says, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall, listen, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? And then the Reb Shekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us, for this city will not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of, Israel, or of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to you. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink of his own cistern. You get just a little taste of how they approached their massive takeover. Come along and we promise you all sorts of good things. They never treated them as well as they promised. They never do, do they, the evil empires? But if you don't, it's awful. Now we think of, in more modern times, some of the terrible, terrible regimes. You think of Hitler or Stalin or Mao or those like this. But the Assyrians, their empire lasted 300 years. So when God says in Nahum 2.13, Behold, I am against you. And then repeats again in chapter 3, verse 5, Behold, I am against you. He is stating unequivocally what his heart is like toward this kind of gross injustice, this terrible, terrible wickedness. He is decidedly against it. We have to know that background. Nineveh then, which is being prophesied against in Nahum, is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It would have been thought invincible, two massive walls, the second one surrounded by a moat. There were rivers that formed natural defenses around this city. It was impenetrable, you would have thought. And yet, here in this prophecy, God is saying through Nahum, Nineveh itself will fall. And after making that prediction abundantly clear, that prophecy abundantly clear, he concludes with a series of taunts against Assyria. And we look at the final two in our passage today. And the first taunt runs from verses 8 to 13, and I call it the Thebes taunt. Through Nahum, God comes along and says, all right, you think you got such a great city? You're going to be like Thebes. I mean, this, this taunt drips with irony. Thebes was a pretty strong city. It was the capital of the great Egyptian empire. Also 
surrounded by water so that it made it very hard to assail this city. Thebes, like Nineveh, would have seemed impenetrable, invincible. It had reigned as the capital city of a great empire for hundreds of years. And yet, just a few decades before Nahum prophesies, Thebes had fallen in an unexpected way, and the fall of Thebes was terrible. The conquerors came and, and carried their great ones away in slavery and chains. Every single person in the city was forced to leave their homeland. And worst of all, we see that description of what happened where it says in verse 10, infants dashed in pieces at the head of every street. But here's the delicious irony. I don't know if delicious is the right word. The, the vicious irony. It was the Assyrians who had conquered Thebes. You think Nineveh's impenetrable? That's what Thebes thought too. And look what you did to them. And what you did to them is what I will do to you. The evil you've done will come back on your own head. And look at the imagery of this taunt. Starting in verse 11. Is this to be like you're drunk? I remember when I was in university on Friday or Saturday nights, certain people coming back to the dorm so drunk they couldn't stand as they went up the stairs. It's like, that's what you're going to be like. Then he compares them to fugitives, these mighty soldiers who instead of standing bravely are out in the shadows trying to hide. I don't want anyone to see me. I need refuge from these people. That's what you're going to be like, he says, at the end of verse 11. Then he compares them to a fig tree where the figs are ripe, low-hanging fruit. That's what your city's going to be like. It just gets a little rattle and push. When I lived in Texas, they had pecan trees. They called them pecan trees. And when it was season for pecans, they would drop their pecans all to the ground, and, and people, would just, people would gather and get all these fresh pecans. And, and once you got all the good ones up from the ground, all you had to do is get a little stick and pop the tree, and more would fall. That's not what you want your city being compared to. This one little tap, walls come tumbling down. Then he says, your troops are women in your midst. Now, in those days when warfare was based on brute strength and brutality, it was not a compliment to compare an army to women. And lastly, he says, the gates of your land are wide open. The, the door's unlocked. It's open. The security system's off. Come on in. Have what you want. The Thebes taunt. But God doesn't end there. You think, Nahum, what are you doing here? 
little tiny puny Israel going up and taking a stick to the massive beehive that's Assyria and rattling it around with this kind of sanctified smack talk. Not a good idea, and yet God doesn't stop. There's another taunt that runs from 14 to 18, the locust taunt. Starts off innocently enough. Okay, there's a battle coming. What does the city need to do to prepare for water? Get the water, you know, make sure you have enough water gathered together. Start building some more bricks so you can fortify, fortify, fortify. But then the sting starts coming. Even as you're doing that, even as you're gathering your reservoir, building up your ramparts, the fire is going to come in and it's going to consume you like burning up a bunch of locusts. Going to be that quick. And, and then the chirping gets real bad. Multiply, multiply yourselves like locusts, multiply like grasshoppers. You see, one of the reasons Assyria felt they were so strong was because their army was so massive, their merchants were so massive. I mean, this was, this was a huge, strong, unrelenting wave after wave empire. And so God's like, multiply, just like locusts do. Multiply, just like grasshoppers do. And you know what happens when a huge swarm, a plague of locusts descends? They come quickly, they devour, and then whoosh, the wind blows and they're gone. And that's what you'll be like. Multiply, multiply. But then when the sun gets hot, whoosh, they're gone. And that's what your princes will be like. That's what your scribes will be like. In the day of battle, all this might gone like a plague of locusts. Verse 18, he just pushes the image a little farther. Not locusts, just sleeping, right? They're going to be sleeping on the job. In the day of battle, those who are supposed to be leading, it's going to be like, where are they? Sound asleep. Now everybody's scattered. What's going on? This is a strange thing to say when you're little Israel to such a big, fierce nation. It's not a good PR move. Already the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdoms. All that was left was the southern kingdoms of Israel or the southern kingdom of Israel. And they were more or less reduced to a vassal state having to give all their wealth, even some of the money from the temple itself, to keep the Assyrians placated. By now, Israel was probably more or less an afterthought. I mean, they were important in their uh, controlling the area in Egypt because of the had to pass through that area, but they'd already conquered. Israel's more or less an afterthought. A little podunk place doesn't really matter. And yet God Almighty has little Israel and the little prophet Nahum going and speaking on his behalf this taunting language to mighty Assyria. It's preposterous. It seems illogical. There's a young basketball player 
a few decades ago named Jerry Stackhouse, and he was kind of the next phenom, and he had his chance to play against an aging Michael Jordan. And they asked him, how are you feeling about playing against Michael Jordan? Jerry Stackhouse said, he can't guard me. No one can guard me one-on-one. little smack talk. Jordan went on to score 48 points against Stackhouse in three quarters. Because when, what's the number one rule of trash talk, right? You don't do it if you can't back it up. Stackhouse couldn't back it up. It could feel a little bit like that here. Little Israel, talking like this to mighty Assyria? What's God doing? But I actually think it's very intentional what God's doing in choosing the little voice to oppose the mighty because that is always how God has worked. His kingdom is the kind of kingdom that's just a little tiny bit of leaven that you put in, and it actually ends up working its way through the whole dough. Faith versus kingdom, tiny, like a little mustard seed, and yet it grows into a great plant. In Deuteronomy 7, God says, do you know why I chose Israel to be the conduit for blessing to all the nations? It's because they were the smallest nation. When God commences his saving plan, he does it through the backwater town of Bethlehem and brings his son to the world through a young virgin, Mary, who's engaged to a carpenter. And they are forced to travel because the occupying nation wants to show off their strength with the census. Eventually, Jesus chooses the, the founding 12 of this, this new covenant, and they're a bunch of nobodies. The way he achieves his victory is by dying on a cross. Do you get the pattern that God likes to use? Which is a good word for you and me who can feel like, I'm just banging my head against a wall. I'm not getting anywhere. What significance do I have? I feel like I'm failing again in my parenting. What am I doing? It's not getting anywhere. I want the gospel to be known in my family, but no one's listening. How do you think Nahum felt? But here's what happened. It wasn't Jerry Stackhouse versus Michael Jordan. It was God Almighty versus Assyria. And it was a no contest. Within a few decades, Nineveh fell to the Babylonians. The waters that protected their city so well were diverted or there was a flood or something like that and it flooded the city and caused the walls to fall down. And the destruction of Nineveh was complete. 
For centuries, centuries, archaeologists denied the existence of Nineveh, thinking that it was some just invention of the biblical authors because there was absolutely no no, um, remains of it that could be found until at some point, just a few decades ago now, somebody put their shovel into the ground and, and found the remains. I said a few decades, a little bit more than that but more recently. And as they dug up the remains, like, there's no wealth there at all. No gold, no silver. It was completely devastated and ransacked. God is strong. The end of the matter comes in verse 19. Why is God talking this kind of smack? Why is God laying him into him like this? Why has he given him this grievous wound that is incurable? Because of the great evil that's pervasive. Everybody in the known world at that time, everybody had experienced the brutality of these Assyrians. And God says, I am cutting down this kind of wickedness. Hear God's heart. The great unjust wickedness that has caused your knees to buckle and for you to feel like, I can't stand God is against it. He holds it in derision. He will do something about it. He's resolved to make things right. Back in the days of knights and fair maidens, of wizards and dragons, there was a village that was in a desperate situation because a certain dragon was wreaking its havoc there. And many, many noble knights had set out to protect the village and to go and slay the dragon. And consistently, the knights had failed and lost their lives and the dragon continued to torment the village. During one particular attack, a mother huddled into the corner of the house with her daughter, shielding her from the potential fire, smoke, the dragon, the terror of his talons. And she comforted her daughter by telling her, A knight is coming who is just, who is kind and tender. He welcomes little children to him. He cares for the people. And the daughter looked up at the mom with saucer-wide eyes and said to her, 
That's all well and good, Mum. But can he slay the dragon? That's the right question. It is important, vitally important, that God is Father, that He is Shepherd, that He is tender, that He says, Let the little children come unto me. That is vitally important. But we also must realize He is the mighty warrior who can slay the dragon. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, it's at the very end, page 1040. Listen to how Jesus is described in this book of gospel triumph of how God's kingdom prevails. Picking up at verse 11, Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When you call to mind who God is, is this a picture that comes to your mind? Now as Revelation describes it, all the nations are in treason against God. And the only, who, the only who escape are those who have put on the righteous robes of Christ, who the blood of the Lamb has, has be, been, been embraced for themselves, for their own forgiveness, and have made Jesus their King and find refuge in Him. Anyone who... Anyone is part of the conspiracy of this world against his kingdom, will be brought down. But those who are in Christ, you who are in Christ, who are here this morning, you must know your God like this as well. Because he will deal with the evil of this world. He will come and he will crush it. And if we don't see Jesus like this, then our hope will shrivel up in the day of great evil. We will not be able to stand. We'll not be able to endure.
we must know among the many things that Christ is, he is a mighty fortress. A flat view of God is not enough. And as the days of evil increase, we must know our God, the God of Nahum. Let's pray. Father, I imagine there are many who are hearing this sermon right now who feel like they can't even stand because evil is so strong, because they're so overwhelmed, because the odds seem so long, because injustice has swallowed them up, because the evil and brokenness of this world seems like it has the final say. It seems like Assyria is one, and we're just this little podunk Israel, the little prophet. I need this message. We all need this message. Remind us of who you are. We're so grateful that you are a tender, loving God, kind and just, a father, a shepherd. Call us your child, your friend. But help us also to see you as the mighty warrior with flaming eyes and a sword from your mouth on a white stallion. And may that give us strength in the day of evil. Amen.